0: Howdy, everyone. Ryan here. Um, need a new introduction for this episode? Alas, we've got an interview with David Kleon that we recorded last night, uh, right before the actual full blown invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russian uh, troops happened. So, a lot of the discussion of uh, you know the present state of affairs is a little bit outdated. However, uh most of the uh the the podcast and what we wanted to talk about anyway was the background to the crisis um you know Putin's rule uh for the last 20 years the expansion of NATO um and uh, his uh long speech that he gave you know sort of calling back to the Soviet Union 19th century uh Russian Empire and so on and so forth so that's all still good um The second thing that I have to uh, mention is that we have a new uh, arrangement with my new employer, the American Prospect. So I'm now the managing editor of the American Prospect, and so we've uh, decided to add a new support tier, um, uh, just like the Know Your Enemy guys, uh, where if you... Uh, support us at $10 a month, you'll get a complimentary digital subscription to the American Prospect. And um, depending on that goes, we may be able to add some more perks, but you know, we'll just see. Anyways, so that's that's a little bit of a change and we're sort of making it on the fly because the news is happening so quick. But enjoy our interview with David Kleon coming up right now.
1: Welcome back to Left Acre. I'm Alexi the Greek.
0: And I'm Ryan Cooper. We've got returning guests this time: David Cleon, uh, a a writer reporter uh, for, I think, Jewish Currents, principally, but also The Nation, The New Republic, and numerous other places. Um, we wanted to have David on because um, not only is he a you know incisive, subtle writer and reporter, buttering buttering you up a little bit, uh, but Uh, speaks Russian, has visited Russia many times, studied the region, as well as Ukraine. And so we wanted to have you on, David, to talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now, which is uh, Wednesday, 5.15 p.m. Eastern Time. And that matters to note because things are developing very quickly on the ground. And what we're going to be talking about in terms of the news is probably going to be outdated by the time I manage to post this. Um, but you know, we'll do the best we can. So welcome to the show, David.
2: Thank you so much for having me, uh, and for your very generous intro. Um, I want to give a shout out to, uh, journalists who are actually, uh, who are on the ground now in Ukraine, as I periodically tell myself I ought to be doing, but in all likelihood won't, uh, including my friend Jack Crosby, uh, who, uh, has been doing dispatches for Rolling Stone, um, and who I believe is in Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine. I mean, at the moment, I believe he is. He's been moving around. Uh, it's the second largest city in Ukraine, and it's very, very close to the northeastern border with Russia, um, and a place that if this invasion goes through, and it very well could in the next 24 hours, I'm going to try to avoid making such predictions, but it's it's very possible. Uh, you know, he, he could be there when it happens. So uh, shout out to Jack, shout out to all reporters and maybe especially, um, you know, Ukrainian reporters who, uh, who are in, uh, what is very likely to become a war zone very soon or very possibly going to become a war zone very soon.
0: Yeah. We'll drop a link to Jack and anybody else you may, uh, you can, you can tell us about David, but, but can you give us, um, a sort of immediate overview, like sort of what's happened over the last week, um, in terms of Russia, the, uh, Ukraine and these sort of, uh, intermediate, like breakaway statelets for whatever you want to call them.
2: Right. Well, it's, it's often hard to talk about, um, this crisis without going back further. I mean, I, I was recently on G here's podcast, which I, I go on often and we covered the history of this going back, you know, to the fall of the Soviet union in 1991 to 2014. Um, but I'll, I'll try to start with the immediate, um,
0: yeah. I want to get into that later. Yeah,
2: I mean, there's there's, you know, in many ways, this is a resumption of a conflict that that started in its full form in in 2014. Um, But uh, what's happening, uh, really, just in the last few days is um, uh, over the long weekend, Vladimir Putin, uh, the president of Russia, I'm sure everyone knows, gave uh, a speech. Well, first, he had this this incredible stage managed meeting with his kind of War cabinet, or or kind of all his senior advisors, where he had them sit in this palatial room, you know, I think thirty feet or so in front of him, and and kind of treated them like uh, contestants on a reality show. It was all <laughs> clearly very staged, and he's very intimidating, and basically manufactured consensus with them, and then did this subsequently in the speech before our eyes on on what it is he's about to do. Um, so the the big point that uh that he got first them to sign off on and then he theatrically signed off on in this speech to the to the Russian people uh right afterwards uh is that Russia is going to officially recognize uh the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic as independent. Um so uh, and the big question which me and other Russia watchers I know were were sort of fixated on for maybe maybe 24 hours after this, probably less than that, was when he says he's going to recognize these two breakaway republics, does he mean he's going to recognize the territory that Russian-backed separatist militias currently control, which is less than half of each of, two, of these two territories, uh, or is he going to recognize the territory they've claimed? So backing up just a bit, Donetsk and Luhansk are two kind of um, depressed industrial cities in the far Eastern part of Ukraine near the Russian border uh, where the Russian language has predominated even as mm. uh, Western Ukraine is mainly Ukrainian speaking and the middle of the country is actually often simplified, but really kind of people tend to speak both in different contexts and mix them together, um, but increasingly trending toward Ukrainian. Uh, but this is the kind of like Eastern redoubt of Russianness. Um, and, uh, it's the region that, uh, in 2014, uh, when this crisis really began and when Russia annexed Crimea, um, Russia backed, uh, these, these separatist militias that declared independent republics in these two Eastern provinces surrounding Donetsk and Luhansk. And there's been a war fought in them since, uh, on and off, which has killed thousands of people, uh, but... As of right now, when we're recording this, you know, at at least half the territory in these two uh, Ukrainian provinces has been controlled by the Ukrainian military. You know, the the line of contact runs through the middle of these two territories. So if Putin had been saying, uh, as some of us briefly hoped against hope he might be, if he had been saying we are going to recognize the territory that Russia or that Russian-backed militia's, Uh, in Ukraine already control, um, then, you know, maybe this can end without a big blow up. I mean, that's a huge uh, violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, but but it's basically just a recognition of the eight-year status quo. But it's become clear very quickly, just in the last uh, 36 hours or so, uh, that no, what they mean by this uh, is the entire territory claimed by the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, uh, people's republics, which means uh, that Russia's official position is that Ukraine is in military occupation of two sovereign countries recognized by Russia. Um, And Putin said at the end of his speech the other day, that if Ukraine does not cease hostilities against these two republics, um, what Russia is calling these two republics, uh, then they will be responsible for the bloodshed that follows. So what most observers now think is going to happen is there's going to be a major Russian invasion of Ukraine. uh, And the pretext will be that Ukraine is in active military violation of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics.
1: David, can I ask quickly about how big the territories are in terms of both population and landmass, roughly, so people get an idea of what we're talking about here?
2: Um, I I, I really should have double-checked this before we do it, but I'm sort of imagining an area about the size of Connecticut or thereabouts. It's it's a relatively small fraction of Ukraine, although densely populated. um, But most of Ukraine lies outside of of these two territories. And Ukraine is a very big country of probably at least 40 million people it's bigger than any country located geographically than any country located entirely within Europe than any country except for Russia. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's huge, uh, and it's huge from East to West and varies quite a bit from East to West. Although people often divide it in a very simplistic way where like West of the Dnieper is Ukrainian and East of the Mm -hmm. Dnieper is Russian. And that's not really true. Um, But uh, but, yeah, it's a small part of the country that actually has been in active war zone for the last eight years with periodic skirmishes. And I believe the count as of now is 14000 dead over the last eight years, which is a lot of people. And at the same time, a contained war uh, that has not physically spread to the rest of the country. And what what very well could happen in the very near future is that could change. And Russia's hundred and fifty thousand or however many it is troops that are massed on three sides of Ukraine right now uh, on the eastern border directly with Russia in the Black Sea Sea of of Azov to the south where and where Russia has de facto controlled and and by their reckoning annexed uh, the Crimean Peninsula since eight years ago, and then also in the north, because a very interesting subplot of all this that's been building for a while is Belarus, which has always kind of been in Russia's orbit, but its own theoretically sovereign dictatorship since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, The pretense that it's not just a base for for direct Russian military operations is kind of over, and there's a huge number of Russians now massed on the southern border of Belarus, very close to the two largest cities in Ukraine which are Kiev, Kiev uh, the capital and Kharkiv um so really at will Russia could overwhelm more than half of the population and probably about half the territory of Ukraine mm-hmm. um after after having kept it in this one corner of the country for eight years
0: yeah the, so i want to talk a, a more about the the history as you are mentioning um and uh but you know the way that the way you described it which is you know with with some more detail like basically the what, what I've sort of come to believe uh like the narrative basically is uh you know Putin Russia is doing Basically, aggressive imperialism of some sort, like pushing around other countries or whatever label you want to put on it. There are reasons for that. There's context for it. The West is not entirely innocent at all. There's been a lot of especially diplomatic bungling, and I think we can get into that. But I mean, you think it's fair to say that they're like you're talking about starting a war like Putin is the main sort of culprit in terms of starting this war?
2: I do believe that. And I think that that's. Not you you wouldn't think that would be so controversial if you, for instance, <laughs> watched or read excerpts of the speech he just gave, um but it is controversial on swaths of the left, which is where I identify myself as 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 you know a, a leftist <clears throat> standing. you've
1: come to the right place here, David at left anchor. let me tell uh, you I,
2: no i I was very. Vocally for Bernie Sanders and still a big Bernie Sanders fan. Of course, Bernie Sanders is unambiguous in seeing Putin as the aggressor in this, but some of the people Just saying so
0: so you know, I see
2: uh, for for uh, Alexios is uh is wearing a Bernie Sanders shirt under his sweater, um, which he just showed on on the
1: I wear it every day. It's my secret, you know, <laughs> Superman outfit.
0: Yeah.
2: I, I respect it. Um, you know, Bernie well it's actually a really I don't want to get too far afield in this, but a really fun subplot in this has been watching Bernie Sanders tweet uh, you know, unambiguously that Putin is the aggressor here and then watching if you if you go into the replies to his tweet, just you know, hundreds of presumably left aligned accounts being some of which I'm fairly sure are real people I've interacted with before. Some of which who knows, uh, just being like, you know, sell out cringe, Bernie's a social Democrat, which is apparently the worst thing you can be now. Um, you know, Bernie is, is an imperialist stooge, whatever. It's been, it's been kind of funny, but also disheartening to watch. Um, I think it's only fair to say, because I, I don't want to turn into a, a, a left puncher. I think it's only fair to say that, yes, there is a long history of US geopolitical blunders that have led to this situation in a, in a long-term sense. I do not believe the immediate crisis is, is the Westfall. That is, I don't believe the fact that a war is about to start now when things were kind of frozen for the last eight years is really in any important way. Joe Biden or the United States or Western Europe's fault. I think this is Vladimir Putin's war of choice. And I feel pretty clear-cut about that until I see any any real evidence to the contrary. But yes, if we wanted to talk about it on more of a 30-year timeline, um, you know, then uh, the, the very short version of this is that uh, in the final years of the Soviet Union, uh, James Baker, who was George H.W. Bush's Secretary of State, Apparently, verbally committed to Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet premier, that you know, as they were winding down the Cold War peacefully, uh, and and Eastern European countries that had been under Soviet domination were overthrowing their communist governments and 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 sort of embracing the West after the fall of the Berlin Wall. There was a commitment that um, that the uh, United States would not move the NATO alliance, which it dominates and which was formed in the. Uh, I guess, 1950s, early 1950s, uh, to um, contain the Soviet Union, uh, would not be expanding yeah. at one inch eastward. And of course, that has subsequently been violated numerous times, most notably during the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. Um, and, and in fact, the NATO alliance, uh, d- during which Russia was seen as very weak. Uh, When when those pledges were being made to the Soviet Union, there still was a Soviet Union. And within a year or so of them being made, there wasn't. It had collapsed into its constituent republics, including Ukraine and the Baltic states, which had been part of the Soviet Union and which are very close to Moscow and to the second largest city, St. Petersburg, um, you know, eventually joined NATO. So did Poland, which uh, people often forget this, but actually shares a border with Russia because of the Kaliningrad Oblast also kind of de facto shares a border with Russia insofar as Russian troops are all in Belarus now. Uh, and, you know, and also Hungary and Romania and the Czech Republic and a bunch of other countries, but not Ukraine. And um, Russia complained at every stage about NATO expansion. They, uh, they registered those complaints. And many Republican aligned, um, or just Republicans in the kind of realist faction of the party, people like James Baker, uh, were warning all along that this was unnecessarily antagonistic to expand NATO and that it might provoke blowback. But, you know, this happened during the kind of end of history moment uh, and also the kind of post 9-11 moment when, when the U.S. basically thought uh, it could hegemonically dominate the world and that every, you know, that Europe was moving inexorably toward the West. Um, and Russia has since kind of regained its geopolitical footing under Putin and and rebuilt a a, a very powerful military. Uh, And in addition to NATO expansion, there's the usual litany of wars uh, that the U.S. uh, has fought that that Russia protested, including uh, the Kosovo intervention in in 1999, obviously the war in Iraq, um, the the war in Libya under Obama, uh, the would-be regime change war in Syria, which Russia ended up getting heavily involved in, Um, and basically won in uh, defying the U.S. Um, And, you know, and then on top of all of that, under Putin, Russia has come to see any popular uprising, whether there's a CIA hand in it or not. And I'm going to remain agnostic and vague about that, depending on which ones we're talking about when, you know, suffice to say that from, from Russia's point of view, when there is a mass uprising in the streets of a former Soviet republic, that is uh broadly pro-western and anti-government that has stable relations with moscow um they consider that u.s expansionism and a threat to their core interests so you know these you know there was also pulling out of the abm treaty after uh 9 11. so you know from russia's point of view there's a long list of things america has done that are kind of broadly geopolitically aggressive toward it and one can agree or disagree with any one of these things. And I think from a left point of view, it's, it's very reasonable to disagree with many or most of them, certainly with Iraq. Uh, but, um, but, but either way, uh, I think that just a realist assessment, even a right realist assessment would concede that, um, that it's not like Russia out of nowhere feels threatened by the U.S. There's a long history behind this. But all of that said, All of that said, I don't think there's anything the U.S. has done under Joe Biden or really Donald Trump, for that matter. I mean, you could argue about selling certain kinds of weapons to Ukraine under Trump. But I don't think there's anything Biden has done that is so, you know, insanely provocative that it justifies what Russia is now very credibly threatening to do. Um, I I think the the bottom line and of course even if you grant all of Russia's security concerns as existing and as things that America has kind of arrogantly poked at. um, And that's basically how I would describe it. uh, You know, you can still argue about whether Russia has a right uh, in any moral or legal sense to maintain uh, its, its predominance over all the countries it it used to rule imperially uh, as, as Putin insists it does. Um, And I, don't think from just kind of broad first principles, left perspective, that Russia has a right to, to dominate Ukraine's internal politics.
1: Isn't that part of the trouble from the left, though? For those who see, um, you know, Belarus, Ukraine and countries that we, w- we would think, you know, as lefties, uh, we should honor their, you know, democratic as such as it is uh, ability to self-rule. Uh, but if what we're actually witnessing is more of, you know, these satellites of a proxy war, and it's like, you know, it's like, two men, manspreading on a, on a, on a shared area. (laughs) It's like, who's going to get more territory? You know, I'm, and and, you know, they're just these two big bullies. Uh, You can see how leftists might be like, well, uh, you know, we shouldn't vote for either of these. They're just trying to to do a, a grab of territory and why should we side with one over the other? Something like that. Right.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I've been so dismayed by the tone of some leftist discourse over this that I'm really grateful for the people I know on the left who I tend to align with the most who I think, uh, I mean, in general, maybe not on the specific issue, but in general, who, who have that attitude of sort of like, these are dueling imperial powers, because that's actually a big improvement over the swath of the left that basically refuses to identify any imperial actor in the world besides the United States. And is thus confused by the idea that Russia could be autonomously uh, uh, provoking a major war. I think it is actually very important as, as I just did at some length to lay out the many missteps the U.S. has taken along the way and the wider context that this is happening in. If you want to then credibly say from a left perspective that Vladimir Putin is also an aggressive regional bully uh, who is uh, about to start a major war, Probably who, who has, let's be clear about you know terms, who did start a major war eight years ago and is about to uh, uh, expand it dramatically, probably. So, um, and I, I the, the, those factions on the left, and also on certain swaths of the kind of Trump-aligned right, including people like Tucker Carlson and um, Steve Bannon, and in his own kind of weird, contradictory way, Trump himself. I think earlier today, uh, you know, they they also basically see Putin as in the right in this conflict, um, and uh, the the narrative which Russia propagates uh, through its various channels, and which people on the far left and the far right have uncritically embraced is that uh, I mean the way I've sort of only slightly hyperbolically been describing it is a narrative in which uh, the entire population of Ukraine all 40 million people are neo-nazis um, now in reality uh, there you know are there far-right parties and above all far-right militias in Ukraine and are they sometimes dramatically posturing on on camera and and, and have they crossed paths with U.S. funding. All of that is true. Although if Americans really want to get worked up about that, I would I would ask them to you know, take a quick look at their own country and the kind of people who parade around in the streets in it. And, and, and for that matter, Russia with you know, the, a country famously devoid of, of right-wing neo-Nazi skinheads. I mean, it's <laughs> can,
1: actually, can, can we just launch the proud boys and a bunch of our Nazis into that war? Is there a way to do that? I mean, if we could put them on the front lines, that would be
2: that the would be form incredible. of military intervention. <laughs> I, I might support here. Just
1: classic two birds, one stone situation. Yeah. No, that,
2: that would work out great. parody satire. But, um, but no, what I'll, what I'll say is that um, I think that the Nazi role in Ukraine in the present, I'm not here to relitigate World War II, which is its own whole thing, um, has been very exaggerated for obvious political reasons by Russia. But the reality is, while far-right parties and anti-Semitism and racism are absolutely live problems in Ukraine, first of all, that doesn't mean Ukraine lacks basic sovereign rights under international law. And second of all, if you look at what political parties have actually been winning in Ukraine's contested multi-party elections over, you know, the last decade, two decades, uh, you know, the far right's really not that powerful there. That's not generally who's winning. Um, and uh, you know, compared to, I mean, what 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 country in the in the Western world doesn't have uh, far right parties, uh, some of which are doing much better than Ukraine's? And while this doesn't disprove anything. I do think it's worth noting that the president of Ukraine is Jewish. And for several years recently, the prime minister of Ukraine was also Jewish. And this is not a secret. And I realize, you know, I'm Jewish myself, and I I run the risk maybe of, you know, saying like, America's not racist, they elected Barack Obama president. But it's (laughs) also not, I think, without overstating the case, I think, you would not say America is populated entirely by Klansmen, given that they elected Barack Obama president, you know, you, you yeah, twice, the picture twice by by sizable margins. You would say the picture is a bit more complicated than that. And I think the picture is a, quite a bit more complicated in Ukraine, too. And I think it does a real disservice and is, is frankly insulting to the very real people uh, in all their um ethno linguistic religious and political diversity in ukraine to to reduce them to the azov battalion um and and uh i I've been really um i think the left can do better than that
0: yeah without, it seems
2: just missing that it's a problem there is an azov battalion <laughs> and it is a problem
0: yeah it seems it seems like it's important to kind of try to be clear headed about this for for two reasons i mean first, you want to be accurate in your assumptions you know and and what you're what you're thinking and talking about in the world, there was this DSA international committee statement that was in, in my view, just preposterously inaccurate and people defended it on the grounds of, well, we're about controlling the imperialism of our own country. Um, but that does, you know, to be, uh, uh so ridiculously like blinkered about like what is happening on the ground, uh, is to isolate yourself politically within this country because you sound like a complete stooge you know a dupe um and then secondly you know the the uh socialism is supposed to be about interne- the international movement you know workers of the world you know not it's not like uh the the only like confronting our own domestic imperial problems that's definitely a key thing and a key thing that like socialists should socialists become uh powerful uh in this country you know be principally concerned with but that doesn't mean that you have to just sort of ignore you know the subjugation of another people uh by like a different imperialist because like it's you know sort of not pinning all the blame for things happening uh on you know the the bigger bad um and you know it's just it's it's intellectually kind of uh 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 humiliating to be that that silly about things
2: well in in many ways for for those of us who feel this way putin himself uh you know the the greatest troll in the world has provided us with kind of the ultimate rebuttal to any any leftist case that might sympathize with him um, in, in his speech the other day, because he, you know, much of his speech was consumed with a kind of, um, let's say very selective, but, you know, arguably true in each of its individual claims, uh, history of the 20th century uh, and, and Ukraine and Russia within it. And in this story, um, you know, Putin has often been accused of wanting to recreate the Soviet Union uh, by his detractors and by, you know, uh, the the kind of people who got very into, uh, in, into the, the most kind of absurd uh, versions of Russiagate uh, over the last few years, you know, that, that Putin just wants to bring back the Soviet Union. But of course, Putin is, you know, a capitalist and neoliberal surrounded by kleptocrats and oligarchs. I mean, he is kind of the ultimate kleptocrat and is not a communist. Uh, and while he's, you know, left some symbols of the communist era standing. He's also criticized uh, communist regimes in the past. And while what he's doing is, you know, basically new and its own thing, the real historical precedent, if there is one that he tends to go back to is is Tsarist Russia, which uh, preceded the Soviet Union. Um, And that was very on display in this speech where his narrative is that the modern Ukrainian state was created by Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Now, here's the thing, that's very plausibly true there's there's a very decent case you can make that that is true the story is obviously a lot more complicated than that ukrainian national identity arose in both the habsburg and romanov empires in the um you know mid to late 19th century it has a whole reconstructed mythological history going back a thousand years as all nationalisms from that era do um and, uh, it, you know, But can
0: you, David, can you just go through that a little bit? Like, like what, what was going on, um, in, you know, the, the, the collapse of the Russian empire, treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and then, and then how Lenin created the, uh, constituent republics of the USSR.
2: Yeah. Shout out to, uh, all my Mike Duncan fans here, uh, <laughs> and Mike Duncan yourself, if you're listening, Hi, Mike. um, Mike, I've I've met before is a wonderful guy, um, and and if people are up to date on his really masterful revolutions podcast, uh, he's he's right in the thick of it right now. In fact, he he literally this week has an episode called Anarchy in Ukraine, which is correctly timed for his own chronology, but just so happens to you know coincide with what's happening now. Um, you know, I'm going to give an extremely simplified version of it. But basically, you know, yeah, you, modern Ukrainian identity came out of um, developed uh, on both sides of the, the Russian and Austrian border, but was especially flourished on the Austrian side because they were in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, allowing greater and greater kind of cultural and intellectual freedom for the diverse nationalities that made up their empire while the the Tsars um, were more repressive. Um, but as the Russian empire collapsed first with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk when the Bolsheviks uh, ceded a huge amount of Western territory, including most of modern Ukraine, um, ostensibly to become independent republics, but largely under the domination of of, um, the Kaiser's German empire, which itself would collapse within a year. Um, And, uh, you know, and then in the midst of this Russia is fighting a huge civil war between the Reds and the Whites, uh, which the Reds eventually prevail in. And it's actually astonishingly complicated. And I, I couldn't begin to summarize in detail what was happening in Ukraine specifically, where you have multiple overlapping attempts to create, you know, a German aligned uh, right wing hetmanet and a, an anarchist uh, uh, people's republic and an, a, a Bolshevik organized uh, Soviet Republic and blah, blah, blah. It's it's a mess. Uh, everybody hates the Jews, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's really bloody. But the upshot is that the Reds win and most of modern Ukraine uh, is incorporated into what becomes known in the early 20s as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics as the second largest Soviet Socialist Republic, Ukraine. It's important to note that in the Russian Empire, there was no such like... Defined territories, Ukraine. There was kind of a region known mm-hmm. as Ukraine, which was the borderlands, and which roughly corresponds to modern Ukraine. Uh, and you know, people spoke a slightly different language there, and, and and had different folkways and this and that. But it was it was divided into multiple provinces that were all part of the Russian Empire. There was not this one set place that was officially Ukraine. And it's really in the kind of late World War One and into the uh, Russian Civil War period that you get a number of different attempts at a Ukrainian state on that territory. And the, the Western part, um, which had been part of Austria and which centers around the city Ukrainians call Lviv and Poles call Lvov and, and Russians call uh, Lviv, uh and, and the Habsburg Germans called Lemberg, um, but which I'll subsequently call Lviv. Uh, uh, it, that, that area ended up in interwar Poland um, and the sort of western edge of Ukraine ended up in interwar Poland and part of it in Czechoslovakia and part of it in Romania. Um, and the majority of it ended up as this nominally. Sovereign Soviet Socialist Republic within the tightly controlled union of Soviet Socialist Republics under Moscow's domination. Um, and after World War Two, uh, where these borders move around again quite rapidly with, you know, the. Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Nazi invasion, et cetera. The upshot of that is that the Western edge of today's Ukraine is annexed into the Soviet Union and specifically into the Ukrainian Republic uh, from what had been interwar Poland, while um, Poland itself is gifted large territories that had been German for centuries. And that's how we get the modern borders of Poland and Ukraine. Um, But of course, and actually that is the first time in modern history at the end of world war two, uh, is the first time in modern history when the Western edge of Ukraine around Lviv is controlled for Moscow. It had never been before. It wasn't part of the Russian empire. Uh, it, 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 wasn't part of the Russian empire and it wasn't part of the Soviet union for its first couple decades. Um, so they were kind of brought in and unified with, with the Ukraine that had been part of the Russian empire and the Soviet union. And, um, in the 50s, for reasons that remain uh, uh, kind of obscure, I have to remember what they were, but basically Khrushchev kind of arbitrarily assigned Crimea to the Ukrainian Republic, none of which mattered that much because Moscow you know, so tightly controlled the whole country. But long story short, when the whole thing breaks up in 1991, you suddenly have Ukraine in, well, what were until recently its modern borders. Um, And suddenly it matters that Crimea is part of Ukraine. Uh, Suddenly it matters that Donetsk and Luhansk are part of Ukraine. And uh, Russia, you know, that that is the the geopolitical disaster from their point of view that they say they're avenging. So, you know, what's interesting about the story, and I think before this we shared an article by Branko uh, Milanovic that actually summed this up quite neatly from Putin's speech. Is, is he sees a series of betrayals that, that, that lead to the current moment. And the most recent ones are from the United States, the litany we've already discussed. But, but the earlier betrayals are by the Soviet leadership at various stages in creating a distinct Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, in moving territory into it. And eventually in the final stages of, of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, letting the Soviet Union disintegrate and letting that country become actually independent. And so, you know, all of which is to say is if you're the kind of leftist who gets pejoratively referred to as a tanky and you think that um, the Bolsheviks are good and the Soviet Union was at least partly good, um, Putin is quite stridently disagreeing with you right now and uh, is is arguing that, in fact, um, The Bolsheviks made a terrible mistake in in recognizing sovereign national republics and and marking borders between them. And that, um, you know, while he is conceding that a country called Ukraine now exists and that Russia has a relationship with it and recognizes it, which is not a concession, for instance, China would make about Taiwan. um, He is also saying that its borders are arbitrary and that Um, it's not right that Crimea or Donetsk or Luhansk should be a part of it.
0: That's the end of the preview, folks. If you want to hear the whole episode, you can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. Thanks for listening.